Andre Tomlin, I'm um, so glad to have you here uh, with us at the ISTSS for the annual meeting. My Thank name you. is uh, Sinoyen Stensland. I'm uh, chairing the meeting here. And, uh, I'm really curious to know how you got into the work that you're doing with the mental health. Thank you, Sinoyen. It's lovely to be here. This, I was just saying this is the first time I've been interviewed for a podcast, I think, having done about 2,000 myself, so this is novel. Um, how did I first get into mental health? I suppose I was inspired to close the gap between research and practice, which is ridiculous. Still in 2019, we have to wait 10 or 15 years for new evidence that we publish to actually reach the front line. Um, and my idea, I suppose, is that you can use digital technology, blogs, social media, audio, video, to communicate that evidence to the people that need it. Practitioners working at the front line, and of course, people living with mental health conditions. Uh, and do you think in, in our field, when you're starting talking about technology, I think and many of us, uh, we're both a little bit scared of technology, and uh, uh, we're also drawn to it because we think it's the way forward, but we don't really know how to use it. We're also scared of losing the social perspective, as we, uh, many of us are therapists. Or, um, could you help us a little bit? Could you tell us what's your thoughts about how, how are you thinking about technology and how we can use it without losing ourselves or using yeah, use it yeah, without yeah. losing? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think you've got every right to be fearful of technology because there's a lot of stuff going on which is very harmful, very dangerous. Uh, we're losing, losing our privacy. We're becoming even more kind of entwined with the data that big corporations hold on us. Um, but at the same time, there are, there are huge positives with digital technology, particularly in, in our world of mental health and interventions. And you know, the support that I've seen people get from peers on social media over the last decade has saved lives. Um, social media has probably also taken lives, um, you know, indirectly through all sorts of harmful behaviours. So I think it's complicated, um, but I think you know we need to evaluate the way that we use digital technology in the same way that we evaluate any other kind of intervention within mental health. We need to think about the, the efficacy, we need to think about the harms, we need to think about the cost effectiveness of it. Um, for me, it's a great medium for communicating, particularly Twitter, in a very informal, conversational way. And that's a game changer for communicating research because research has historically been communicated in a very inaccessible, traditional way, written by researchers for other researchers, proving how clever they are to each other, rather than communicating to frontline practitioners who are desperate for new knowledge and new approaches, rather than communicating it to people who are living with mental health problems. So that's kind of what we've seen over the last 10 years and the explosion of blogs and social media is that it's become a much more democratic conversation that we started to have about research, and that's really exciting. Uh, talking about how uh, we could better reach out to uh, people who actually need the knowledge that we're talking about at the conference, we're talking about trauma, we're talking about resilience, we're talking about how to live with it, but we're also talking about a lot of uh, scientific wording and all of that. So uh, I was wondering, what's your experience about bringing the service users into uh, getting to know the needs 
and uh, yeah. yeah could you talk about that yeah sure so Spencer Murray has just sat down next to us who is one of the young people who's here from Looking in Theatre um, that's a great time to join the conversation Spencer <laughs> nice to see you um, welcome I think yeah for, for me that's everything having a conversation that involves you know obviously not just researchers talking about research but involves people who the research is for and it's surprising that in 2019 most mental health conferences don't have proper representation of people with lived experience they might have delegates they might have one or two people who are up on the stage to tell a inspirational story of recovery but they're not co-produced, kind of created by people with lived experience on the whole. There's very few conferences like that. The conferences I've been to where that happens are totally different because you don't have very long keynote presentations in extremely inaccessible language. You have much more interesting, challenging discussions that are very much focused on what's needed at the front line. So I just came out of the session, which is a panel discussion, really interesting panel discussion on refugees and mental health. Um, and one of the comments made there by one of the researchers was that actually most of the research in this field doesn't answer the questions that the practitioners say are important, doesn't answer the questions that people who've been displaced, forcibly displaced, say they need answering. There's this big disparity between the questions that we're asking with research and the stuff that people actually need the answers to but I, I that's really interesting mm. but uh, because uh, you just sat down uh, Spencer and uh, you joined us from the looking in theater you're an actor yeah uh, and uh, uh, we're so glad to have you here and you, it's great to be here and I was wondering what's your Impression, and uh, could you tell us a little about a uh, bit about how it is for you to be here, and w- what do you think about the things that that um, Andre's ri- uh, the uh, th- issues that Andre's rising about? Then are we meeting the needs of people? Or? Right, and so you know, in addition to being an actor, you know, I'm yeah. I'm also a service user, so I've I've been through on the on the client side some of this, and so. One of the interesting things about that was to hear all of this very technical dialogue, and uh, we talked a little bit about this last night, to say, oh, well, here's the the clinical formal word for this subjective experience I've had, and that was um, a really funky experience that I'm still processing, and I'm, you know, but, um, yeah, to... To also, I think it's a huge benefit to ISTSS to have, um, well, yeah, I could consider myself an outsider to to that side of the field, to have outsiders come in, people who are not uh, formally trained come in, um, because, you know, when we get together in communities, we can all start thinking one way. And to have somebody who comes from outside that community to come in and, and sort of question these notions and say, well, hey... You know, what about that or what about this? And, you know, um, for example, something I was sitting in on yesterday was about uh, PTSD and substance use disorder and opiate use disorder. And everybody they were working with was on medication-assisted treatment, on methadone or buprenorphine. Um, and as somebody who, who is in recovery, you know, I'm really opposed to those methods. I really don't support uh, medication-assisted 
treatment because <clears throat> from what I've seen subjectively, uh, nobody ever gets off methadone. And methadone has these really nasty impacts on our brain and on our body. You know, people lose their teeth and their spinal discs decay, and, and it still has the, the negative impact on our neural pathways that, um, you know, active addiction does. And so that was not even on the table here. You know, it was totally within the world of medication-assisted, right? And so to be able to say, well, hey, you know, can we apply this same method you were using there? How can we access a community that is not going to the methadone clinic? And, you know, what are, what are the next steps, you know, using this trauma-informed and substance use disorder informed treatment on these people with who are doing the MAT way, how can we get them off of the methadone? Because sure, maybe that's a step down, but you know, it, it can oftentimes just start to feel like state-sponsored addiction to me. Uh, that's a great example, isn't it? And yeah. I think so. For me, the solution to that, the big solution to that, is that we need to completely change the way research works, the whole way that research is organised and funded questions that we ask you know that kind of research the research that would answer the question that's most relevant to you would be survivor-led research or service user-led research you know research is actually conducted by people that have lived experience of that problem and you know that's a massive move away from the way that research councils think about how can we best help people that suffer from addiction problems that have traumatic histories um that's a really different world of research than we currently have, but we need to move in that sort of direction. But I you know researchers will always be skeptical to that. To them, they will ask. Uh, I know, last myself and many have asked with me. Uh, but how uh, how is the service user going to be able to uh, find out what kind of knowledge we do uh, do not have and find. Uh, and move in the right direction and build on the knowledge we do have. I think there's been some um, uh, people have been scared about moving in that direction because it feels like it's not a step forward. Uh, what's your experience about that? My experience is that if you do qualitative research or mixed methods research, which is led by people or co-produced by people who have lived experience of the condition, then first of all you answer a question which is relevant to frontline practice. And, you know, the vast majority of research is irrelevant and unreliable, you know. So first of all, we ask the right question. And the way that we conduct that research, you know, if you have somebody with lived experience of addiction, lived experience of trauma, somebody like Spencer who's asking the questions of the people who are in the research, that research is going to work so much better because they're going to have a relationship, they're going to have a, a bond immediately with Spencer as the interviewer. You know, so I think it's just a, it's a simple, obvious thing to do for me. This is very different from what we're currently doing. Are you saying that uh, the researcher is in no use? Or would the researcher and clinician be useful within that concept or that way of thinking too? How I mean, would, I, would it work together? Or I think would we're all human separately? beings and we all have lived experience. And, you know, in this kind of setting, what we tend to do in a conference setting, what we tend to do is we say, you know, I'm here as a scientist. I'm here as a researcher. You know, oh, I'm here as a, as a service user. I'm here as somebody with a traumatic past. You know, that's rubbish because we all have lived experience. You know, I'm here as an elf. I'm here as a podcaster, as a social media person. But I, I've had depression. I've had anxiety. I've had all sorts of mental health issues. I think we need to kind of recognise that we all have that 
very complex mix of experiences. Um, but what I'm saying is that we need to have more researchers who've got lived experience as their primary role in the research. We need to have more people who are survivors of the mental health system who are researching how to improve the mental health system. You know, that just makes sense. Yeah, and, you know, going through... I mean, the recovery uh, industry in America is a mess, and that's a whole other conversation. But going through that industry, um, you know, I had the experience of working with people who were themselves in recovery, and I had the experience of working with clinicians who were not in recovery. And I wanted absolutely nothing to do with the people who were not in recovery um, because being in that state, I was very vulnerable. I was very defensive, and I was looking for any justification to stay in my addiction, and I don't think that's an experience that's unique to me, right? And so the importance of having somebody who was a clinician, went through all the same uh, education and certification, but could also say, okay, so here's what the textbook says, and here's how I got better, and how do, you know, how do we make these things meet? because uh, my experience in that was the academia felt like a whole bunch of hot air. And I said, that doesn't, that doesn't apply to me. And, you know, the clinicians who hadn't been through it were saying, well, but it applies to addicts and this and that. But, but that's not me, that's a book. But someone who knew the books and had that lived experience was able to say, well, okay, so we can take these concepts out of the research that are useful to you, that are relevant to you, and then we can take these concepts from my own experience and kind of make a more holistic picture. And I think that would be a good direction uh, to move in. But do you think we could, because uh, in, uh, in the very like long term, if, uh, if I understand it right, that would then we would have to suppose that a therapist would have to go through very many diseases and conditions to be able to be a good therapist. Does it have to be that way, or could we? is there a possibility for us to work better, uh, together more constructively uh, so that we can actually bring up knowledge uh, together that's, um, uh, that, that's more useful and that's more need-based? Right. What's your so in the terms of you know for instance a trauma study, not every scientist or every researcher on that study. Of course, they don't all have to have have suffered some kind of severe trauma, but to I think um, you know use the tools that we have, which are you know clearly from myself and these other young people showing up, we do have this option to be working with people who are outside of the mainstream researcher and are, are interested to help and collaborate, um, you know, so for instance, I could just consult on, uh, on a study and say, well, have you thought about it this way or thought about it that way? And I'm not doing any of the actual research. I'm just there to say, well, did you think about this? And when you do that, it makes me feel like this, you know, yeah. and in that way we can help. And that's sound co-production. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that all clinicians or all researchers have to have lived experience. I'm saying that currently the way the system works is that they are penalised for being open about their lived experience. You know, Which group is most um, stigmatising towards mental health patients? Mental health professionals are. That's a really depressing piece of evidence. You know, 
mental health professionals are very unlikely to express or to, to be open about their own, their own mental health difficulties because of the stigma of that. You know, being treated as a patient in your own hospital where you are a member of staff. Just, you know, so that needs to change. Um, and I think it, the way it needs to change is that we need to train more people with lived experience to become researchers. You know, we need to have a, a pathway. You know, at the moment, people with lived experience become maybe social workers or mental health nurses, or that's quite a common pathway. We need to have a pathway where they're encouraged to become researchers, and not just qualitative researchers, but researchers of all kinds, so that we have that as a, as a real strength within the research community. Do you think this might be one of our blind spots that's actually leading to us not being able to even meet with some of our patients? because uh, we're not uh, addressing the needs? or Well, yeah, I think that, um, and, and this may just be me, but I think, you know, it doesn't apply to everybody, but there are a lot of people who feel the way I do that, that there is this really wide gap between the informed, you know, the qualified, the, the people who have all those letters after their name, and then us regular people over here. And so, you know, as we can see, you know, a, a direct symptom of a lot of the things we talk about here is, um, you know, those feelings that what I have to say isn't valid or feeling defensive or feeling angry or wanting to separate or dissociate. And so all of those will then exacerbate that gap within my own mind. And then it feels like someone in your position is totally inaccessible to me. And even though you're studying trauma and I'm suffering from trauma, it feels like you're working with this fake thing, almost. You know, you're working with the idea of trauma and I'm suffering from the event of trauma, you know? And so how, how can we bring those together, you know?